Julie, doesn't it feel like there's been an increasing amount of stories about young athletes collapsing with cardiac arrest? Yeah. I mean, we're in that world. <laughs> like that's the type of physicianing we do for the most part as sports medicine docs. And I still feel like there's, there's, there's more being talked about than, than there has been in the past several years, for sure. Yeah, I mean, there's obviously been some high-profile cases recently. There was DeMar Hamlin with the Buffalo Bills last year after the collision that happened on, on national TV. And then a couple weeks ago, you know, Bronny James, the son of LeBron James, suffering cardiac arrest at a USC basketball practice. And and both of these are, are high-profile cases. They have led to a lot of news coverage. There's been plenty of buzz about it. Um, but what really kind of pushed us to this episode or pushed me to this episode was, you know, on the day of Bronny's collapse, I hadn't heard of it at that point, but I had a number of patients come in and ask me, had I heard about mm-hmm. it? And then they just kept asking me a bunch of questions. And I was like, this is great. I should just remember all these questions people are asking me and we should just do an episode. So they kept saying like, why did, why do you think it happened? Is it common? Is he going to be okay? Could it have been prevented? I mean, these are all good questions and ones that obviously I couldn't answer at the time, but, but certainly ones that I'm sure more than just my patients were thinking. Um, so what better way to get the answers to this than you and me not answering them, but to go grab a doctor friend, maybe one that happens to be nationally recognized in the area of sports cardiology and screening for cardiac conditions and athletes, bring them on the show and ask them these great questions. What do you think? I think that's great. I think we know some really, really great people. Yeah, we happen to be networked here, so we're going to be doing a pretty good (laughs) job with that. So today, your doctor friends will be answering, why do athletes get cardiac arrest and can we prevent it? Welcome to your doctor friends, the show that teaches you to sniff out the garbage and answers all the questions that you wish you could call or text your doctor friend. My name is Julie Bruni. And I'm Jeremy Allen. And we are two physicians who work at a nationally ranked practice and take care of some of the world's greatest athletes. We know that you have questions and we want to help. We want to be your doctor friends. Julie, today's topic is a pillar of sports medicine and incredibly important cardiac arrest is as serious as it gets and and certainly even more serious or maybe more uh, traumatic um, when it hits young, seemingly healthy uh, people. Um, And in these cases, like that we talked about uh, in the intro, these are peak performing athletes. It's incredibly jaw dropping to think about these people who we look at and we're like, you're the fittest person I know. And then they collapse of cardiac arrest and you say, how can that happen? So the cases above have fortunately had good outcomes to date. The, um, the, the both athletes, as far as I know, are doing very well. Um, but their nor- notoriety has certainly allowed us to expand the conversation about preventing these situations in the future. So with that, I'm going to be super excited to bring on our expert today. I want to introduce everybody to Dr. John Dresner. John is a professor in the Department of Family Medicine and director of the UW Medicine Center for Sports Cardiology at the University of Washington. He serves as the editor-in-chief of the British Journal of Sports Medicine, and he's a team physician for the Seattle Seahawks, the OL Reign of the NWSL, and the University of Washington, the newest member of the Big Ten. Dr. Dresner is a past president of the American Medical uh, Society of Sports Medicine, AMSSM, which is our big organization, and he's dedicated his career to the prevention of sudden cardiac arrest and death, SCA slash D, in young athletes and the development of effective models for prevention. So he fits this. I mean, I couldn't think of anybody better to be on for this. So John, can't thank you enough for coming on and joining us. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Jeremy. Thanks, Julie. Really, really glad to be here. Yeah, this is uh, an awesome topic. And I know that uh, when these big stories came out, I mean, you I, you were quoted in big publications. I People want your time and we're so we're so grateful to have it. So before we dive in, we'd love to hear about your journey to your current role. Sports cardiology is, 
I think a relatively young field and maybe people didn't even know that there was sports cardiology. You're a family doctor. You paved the way for a lot of this. Maybe give us your story, your biopic. Who is John Dresner? Yeah. Well, um, how long do we have to talk about that, right? <laughs> as long um, as you want, man. Yeah. <laughs> you know, for our listeners, you know, sports cardiology really uh, is a relatively new field. And I think you can get to it from different routes. You know, my route um, comes from the sports medicine side, but I would say the majority of, uh, of people who practice in the sports cardiology space are cardiologists, um, with, with a strong interest in, in heart issues and athletes. You know, for me, um, I was first exposed to athletic heart changes and sudden cardiac death and athletes through a medical school rotation in my fourth year at UCLA. And it just struck a chord with me. I, I was a I was a college basketball player. I played at Brown University, and during my era um, was when Hank Gathers died, and that was an incredibly tragic event. You know, public view, um, really no on court resuscitation, just an incredible tragedy. Followed um, soon thereafter by Reggie Lewis, Len Bias, and sort of other um, basketball players who had cardiac arrest and. Then in medical school, I was interested in everything. My favorite rotation was the, the cardiac intensive care unit. <laughs> um, and this rotation in sports medicine. And then I did a family medicine residency and it all just sort of stayed with me. Um, and eventually my, my first publication was on uh, screening and prevention of sudden cardiac death. And my first research project, uh, interestingly, was, was asking the question of whether or not we should put AEDs, you know, those those portable defibrillators, automated external defibrillators, you know, in the collegiate setting. That was back in 2003, um, where now we know that answer is absolutely yes. And, and because of some of that research, AEDs have really become standard in our collegiate and, and high school athletic setting. But then I realized that, that even with AEDs, there were still a lot of young athletes who were dying. And it made me turn towards the other side of prevention. You know, how can we screen these athletes and prevent these tragedies from happening? And I think it it it, it required that I look closely at common practices within the U.S. Sort of this history and physical based, you know, sports physical that really we learn is like the foundation of sports medicine. We hang our hat on it, and it unfortunately really has no evidence that it works. And mm -hmm our European colleagues who have for decades now done something different using an electrocardiogram or an EKG to help us sort of look under the hood for those heart conditions that are silent, but can be, but can be killers. And, and that sort of just sparked a fire, you know, to, to help our discipline, sports medicine physicians do what we're supposed to do, but do it better. You know, we all have to do sports physicals. No one wants to do a bad job. So if we're going to do screening, let's do it well. It was really like a really good kind of like overview of where we're headed with this episode. You've must have done a podcast before. Well done, Dr. Kessner. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> yeah. John, like, so for example, tomorrow I'm slated to give a, a PowerPoint lecture to our sports medicine fellows about how to do an effective pre-participation physical exam. So should I just tell them it's all horseshit? Don't bother. <laughs> what do you think? What, yeah. What's you know? I get. I guess it depends on what the end of your of your yeah. of your presentation is. Are you talking about electrocardiograms and using mm -hmm. you know an EKG, 
or are you not? Because if you're not, I think you can probably just skip the whole lecture and go out to lunch and get to know your fellows <laughs> and you haven't missed anything. Um, you know, we, it, it's true. And unfortunately, it's true. I mean, we're taught you know, these history questionnaires that, that kids have to fill out. I've got three children. They've all filled them out through their years. Um, we see them over and over again. All our states require them. And when people fill out these questionnaires, there's a high false positive response. You know, you, we have these heart health questions. You know, 20, 25 percent of kids check one of the boxes that they have you know, one of these symptoms. The, the, the wording of the questions is not validated and scientifically like developed. Um, they're very wordy. You know, what kid hasn't experienced pressure, tightness, you know, chest pain with exercise or feeling short of breath with exercise? Like they're just poorly written. The physical exam we do with the stethoscope is, is really old school. Um, we've published research that really none of us are good at distinguishing a pathologic heart murmur from a physiologic heart murmur. Mm -hmm. And so, which is really the, the, the main like sort of focus of how we've learned PPEs or, or sports physicals in medical school was we have to listen a certain way to the athlete. We're going to listen to you standing and laying down and holding your breath and listen for this heart murmur where most of the time with the disease we're looking for hypertrophic cardiomyopathy that heart murmur doesn't exist right and if we do hear a heart murmur we're not very good at distinguishing if it's normal or abnormal and so no one's getting the right workup anyway and if we just did an ekg we'd understand if they have cardiomyopathy or not and so i think what people forget here is that the single primary objective of doing a sports physical is the identification of heart conditions that put kids at risk for sudden death. And we've chosen for decades now to use a tool, a questionnaire and a stethoscope that don't work, that don't identify those kids. And so why not use a different tool for the exact same purpose that actually statistically performs much better, but only if you know what you're doing. And so, as you know, within the sports medicine community, we've spent you know, a lot of time and effort to try to train our sports medicine colleagues that EKG interpretation and accurate interpretation is really a fundamental skill. It's, it's not like only the people who are interested in sports cardiology should be able to do this. I think if you're a sports medicine physician, this is absolutely a fundamental skill. You should be good at it and you should be doing it frequently. It should distinguish you from just a primary care provider that has a lot of other things to focus on and maybe hasn't spent the time to learn ECG interpretation in athletes. So for your lecture tomorrow, I, I, I hope it's good. I'm sure it will be. It'll be great. We've got lots of resources we can share with you about how to um, learn ECG interpretation for your fellows. Boy, I hope they do our training modules. We know all about the, the international criteria. Um, but I think if you want to make a difference for them, preparing them long term to hopefully help identify the conditions at risk, I think it has to include a, an EKG. Yeah, I think that's a great point. The reason to do a pre-participation physical is there's a lot of reasons. One, because it's required. So you have to. You have to get this thing done or else you can't play. And so I think that it becomes a very perfunctory thing that some primary care providers and sports medicine physicians do to check off a box so that this kid can go do the thing. And I don't think that that's doing our duty and our service to our patients sometimes. And if it's just like, yeah, 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 you're fine. I think you've lost a, 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 an opportunity for one fulfilling that duty. I mean, I would certainly say that there's other parts of the, the 
exam that are helpful just for like general health things great but if our if our goal like you're saying john is to prevent or or, or to screen for conditions and prevent sudden cardiac death i agree with you wholeheartedly that yeah it ain't cutting it right And, and and so this really this really gets at what the purpose of that evaluation is right so if if the purpose is to attract adolescents into their primary care provider for a general health screen then there may be some value i'm going to check your blood pressure I'm going to do a social check. Are you safe at home? I'm going to do a mental health screen. I'm going to tell you not to smoke, wear a helmet, use a condom. And, and there's some preventive things there that you can do that, that may yeah. be of value. But when you look at the literature of why kids are getting sports physicals, the primary objective is the identification of, of conditions that put them at risk of catastrophic injury or sudden death. That's the, and, and for many kids who don't have access to care, the creation of a required sports physical has been a barrier to sports participation. And it unfortunately, you know, disproportionately affects those who don't have good access to care, who, who don't have the financial resources, who may not have insurance. You know, on at the end of this month, our sports medicine group is volunteering our time to perform sports physicals at a school district within the state of Washington that has the the, the most socioeconomic um, deprivation than anyone else. Sorry. There you go. For the record, John's lights just went out. Yeah, that's what happens when you sit too long at my desk and the lights just he's go out. He's a pro and he just or, flailed or you're and just came trying back to quiet me, Or you're just trying to quiet me in the middle of the podcast, which is also has <laughs> probably happened to me before. That's a, so. that's a pro right there, man. Just smooth as butter. Keep going, John. Yeah, so... But anyway, so at the end of the month, we're doing these sports physicals in a in a student population with with very low you know resources and access to care for really the sole purpose of of allowing the opportunity to play sports. And I know that the creators of the of the sports physical and the, the pre participation evaluation, you know that the, the the goal was not to create barriers, right? And but but in reality, we have we've created a mandatory evaluation that actually costs a ton of resources and money that has really no proven benefit outside of just a normal well child care check but that's not really the main purpose and we're not using the right tools and so you know if we're really going to step back the right thing to do which we'll never be able to do at this point is to either rewind or just dismantle the way we do sports physicals and recreate it but but we don't and i think it's a little different when you or a team physician, maybe at a college setting or a professional setting where you're now acquiring a new patient into your practice. And that sports physical is that opportunity to get to know their health history and their health concerns, current injuries, as well as that heart screen. Um, but for our adolescents, our middle school and high school athletes who are required to get the sports physicals, you know, they're, they're, they're getting the sports physical to check the box and not necessarily for that general health screen. I feel like we nosedived right into prevention and I'm just going to keep hammering home. We can always go back and talk about the other stuff because this is good. So yeah. what is your current outlook on our ability to actually prevent this from happening? So if we did what you said, can we prevent this from happening to these athletes that we're hearing more about? I think we can. I think we can prevent it. I think we can do a much better job than we are. But I think everyone has to recognize that no matter what we do from a screening standpoint, it's not perfect. It's not perfect. We're always going to hear about cases of sudden cardiac arrest in young athletes. We 
because no matter how we screen them, we will never identify all of the potential disorders that can lead to sudden cardiac arrest. And there are some disorders that can be acquired over time. And so a single time point in screen doesn't necessarily protect you forever. And you have to have the other side of prevention and be prepared to respond to sudden cardiac arrest in the case of an emergency. And I, I know we'll talk about what that means and the availability of AEDs and how we've seen that, you know, save Damar Hamlin and how, you know, we've heard that that's exactly what happened to save Bronny. And so um, I do think that we can do better. I think when we use an EKG, an EKG should suggest or identify about two thirds of the heart conditions that place a young person at risk for sudden cardiac arrest. And so that's pretty good. Um, and what comes next is really important because there's lots of evidence, disease specific evidence that when you have early detection and intervene, when you do risk stratification, where you treat certain diseases with medications or certain diseases with heart ablations or certain patients that are really high risk get an internal defibrillator, that these interventions save lives. And so I really believe that as screening has, you know, as this um, pendulum has swung more and more to better screening, use of an EKG, more early detection of those heart illnesses, that we are going to um, have this opportunity for better management of these disorders before they're ever a problem. And management doesn't always mean disqualification from sports. The whole goal is to hopefully keep kids playing sports, but safer than they are, knowing what they have if they have a heart condition. All right. I think we have a lot more prevention questions, but you did a, you brought up disorders. You, you brought up they could it can catch two thirds of the thing. So let's start with probably the most common question I got on the day that this happened with Bronny James. Why why does this happen to elite athletes? Like these are the picture of peak performance. Why is he having cardiac arrest? Yeah, absolutely. And you know I don't have information on Bronny. I don't think anyone does, right? So what we'll talk about is a generality and not certainly trying to to hypothesize or guess what what happened to Bronny, but. Um, you know, young athletes can suffer sudden cardiac arrest, and it is usually from an underlying heart condition that has otherwise been undiagnosed. And these heart conditions um, have a variety uh, of um, uh, structural or electrical problems with the heart. They can be heart muscle diseases, what's called cardiomyopathy. They can be electrical disorders of the heart, things like long QT syndrome or Wolf-Parkinson-White. They can be structural or abnormalities of the heart, like an anomalous coronary artery. They can be acquired disorders like myocarditis or early coronary disease. So there's a real spectrum. And that's also what makes screening so difficult. You're not looking for a single disease. You're looking for a variety of different diseases. So it makes it challenging as a clinician to identify what it is and, and also to follow up with the right testing if one of your screening tests is, is abnormal. And, and most of these individuals who harbor one of these conditions usually don't know it. And I think that's what people don't understand. You can have one of these conditions and feel totally healthy. You can perform like an elite athlete. You, you can still do wonderful things in sports until you have that lethal arrhythmia and you have sudden cardiac arrest. And so there is evidence that 
probably about 80% of young athletes who suffer sudden cardiac arrest never had any warning symptoms that they had a heart problem. And the cardiac arrest was actually the first presentation of their heart disease. And so if you just stop for a second right there and think for a moment that we've based our screening evaluation on asking about prior symptoms. Well, mm -hmm. out of the gates, we've missed most of the people at risk, right? If only maybe 20% have any warning symptoms before they end up having sudden cardiac arrest and just didn't know it. Um, so most of them can have these sort of silent conditions. Why all of a sudden on that day at that moment, they have cardiac arrest when they've been playing sports for years and years with no problem. That's a really good question. And I don't think we have the answer for it. Um, so, so this can be out of the blue. It can be somewhat random and, and that's why we need to be prepared for it as well. To clarify, mo the, those conditions that you talked about, are those all genetic? I mean, is it, people aren't developing these things by something they particularly do versus they were born with it? Most of them are, um, so some are congenital, they're born with it, like anomalous coronary artery, some of these structural conditions. Some of them are genetic heart conditions like cardiomyopathy. If you look at cardiomyopathies, um, the majority of them are inherited. So there's a family history of cardiomyopathy, but some are sporadic, meaning that you're the first person in your family to have the, the actual gene mutation that causes the heart disease. Um, and, and then our, our, our electrical conditions of the heart, the ion channel disorders like long QT are genetic, um, but things like Wolf-Parkinson-White are not. And so I think most, I would say, are inherited or genetic, but, but many conditions are not. And how about like how common this is? I mean, you've mentioned a bunch of conditions and I'm sure they each have their own prevalence, but the concept here of like young athletes going down, it kind of feels like we talked about in the intro. It seems like we're hearing more and more about this. Do we know how common this overall is? Yeah. So, so, so let's, let's divide this question into two things. So, so one is like, how common are these heart conditions? You know, I, in other words, the prevalence of these heart conditions overall and then the second question, well, how common is cardiac arrest in athletes? Because those are two different questions, because a lot of kid, a lot of people can have these heart conditions. And thankfully, not everyone goes on right. to have cardiac arrest. So so the first question, like how common are heart conditions in young athletes? You know, the research shows that about one in 300 young athletes has a heart condition at potential risk for sudden cardiac arrest. Again, that doesn't mean that they all go on to have a, a tragic event, but they are at higher risk because of their heart condition. So combine all those diseases I talked about, the heart muscle diseases, the electrical problems, about one in 300 kids would have one of those problems and majority of which are identifiable by an EKG. You know, thankfully they don't go on to have problems. When we look at the research about how common cardiac arrest is, you know, that is research that um, has improved over the last couple decades. And now we have better and better numbers. So if we look at college athletes, you know, the risks of sudden cardiac arrest overall is about one in 45,000. So that doesn't sound that high, but that's, that's about five times higher than I learned in medical school when people were telling me it was about one in 250,000. And that's because we have better 
research now and better reporting strategies and case identification strategies. But some athlete groups are higher risk. And so we know that male athletes are higher risk than female athletes, probably three to one, if not higher, um, for reasons that um, we don't understand Black athletes tend to be at higher risk than white athletes. There are some sporting groups that stand out as well. Male basketball players are the single highest risk group. And if you look at NCA Division I male basketball players, the risk of sudden cardiac arrest is about one in 5,000. And in one research study that we did in male Division I black basketball players, the risk of sudden cardiac arrest was one in 2,000 per year. So, so one in 2,000 per year, one in 5,000 per year is, a, is, is so different than one in 250,000 a year. You know what I mean? Like, so as a, as a sports medicine physician tasked with making sure that your kid is safe to play sports, this really is our responsibility. And this is where I don't understand, like our colleagues who take care of men's basketball in college and who aren't doing a robust screen. I don't get it. I, I just don't get it. I don't understand it. Um, there's sort of no position to fall back on if there was a tragedy and you didn't look harder before it ever happened. Um, so, so it seems like research over time has allowed us to have more information about um, perhaps which risk groups stand out. And if we're thinking about screening, you know, at, at minimum, these highest risk groups warrant better screening. I would have thought that all the NCA teams were doing all the same thing. Like yeah. everybody came in and they all did the same testing. So they don't all do the same thing. And what are they not required to do all the same thing? Yeah, they're, they're not required to do the same thing. They're required to at least do a, a history and physical. Um, but the NCA has not made a blanket requirement. Um, it is largely driven by resources, and the resources are both financial as well as physician, um, meaning do you have the expertise at your institution to do um, EKG screens and do the cardiology resources around you to help with that if there are um, EKG abnormalities. Um, we did a, a Chris Myers from Baylor led a, a survey um, of Power Five conferences it was about five years ago. And so you take the biggest conferences, the wealthiest um, athletic institutions in the country, and about 75% were screening their athletes with EKG. And so even in the Power Five conferences, with all the resources, it still wasn't universal. And you can, you know, for sure guess that if you are a, a lower level, let's say division one, or certainly division two or division three school, the likelihood that you're doing universal EKG screening your athletes is, is much lower. And so you have to have a very committed, honestly, team physician who knows what they're doing and has made it happen. Um, and so unfortunately, I would say the majority of our college athletes are not getting EKG screens. And then at the high school level, it's, I mean, it's almost nobody. Yeah. It also seems like there's some heterogeneity between which sports, like if you have to, if you have division of resources, which sports get to get EKG screening. And clearly, you know, John, with with the statistics that you've just given us of that 
male basketball players have the higher, highest risk of this, that would kind of stratify them. Like if you were trying to figure out like, okay, we only have so many resources to do one or two sports, mm-hmm. you know, that must be a hard decision for an athletic director or for someone to make to say, okay, well, we'll screen these people because they're at higher risk. And I'm sure there's probably a lot of scuttlebutt, you know, between the other athletes being like, well, what, what am I just because I play lacrosse, I'm chopped liver, you know, like, but that's gotta be a difficult conversation to have. Absolutely. And, and this is where policymakers have to, you know, think carefully about, about what they do. I think from the medical stand side, a couple comments, you know, male basketball is the highest risk group. If you combine, if you take male basketball and American football, you have over 50% of all sudden cardiac arrests in young athletes in two sports alone. And if you add soccer to that, you have about two thirds of all cases in just those three sports. Add in track and field, and you're at 75%. And so you have some risk groups to sort of you know think about. Um, you know, it's also hard, I think, only to screen male athletes and not female athletes, too, because female athletes can be at risk as well. And so these decisions become difficult. And the way I um, suggest to my colleagues who are just starting to, like, dip their toe in the water to do EKG screening is I think you need to gain experience. And I think there's there's good justification to pick a couple teams probably your high risk teams like basketball and football, or maybe just men's and women's basketball or men's and women's soccer and do EKG screening. So you can gain experience. So you can work out your referral pathways. You can get your cardiologist some experience and then next year expand it to all your athletes. And once you're doing it in all your college athletes, when you're in your clinic and you're seeing your high school athlete, I guarantee you, you'll be doing your, your, your EKG screen as well. Cause now you feel more confident and you've got the experience. So, like any other skill, you sort of need to, you know, develop that experience, train and 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 um, implement it, you know, more broadly. In medicine, we don't always treat every person the same, meaning there's good precedent that people with high risk family histories will get screening earlier. So for instance, if we think about colon cancer, breast cancer, things like that, strong family histories, you may be getting your colonoscopy earlier. You may be getting your mammogram earlier if you're in a higher risk group. So there's sort of precedent to look at high risk groups and intervene differently. And this needs to be worked out more so in our athlete groups. But but I, but I actually don't think it's too far-fetched that there could be targeted screening for high-risk groups, at least as a starting point to develop better infrastructure to do it in everyone. You mentioned four sports and a very staggering percentage of people that were in those four sports. Why the, why those four sports? I mean, I, I my feeling was basketball and maybe football made sense because I th- was thinking really big people, really big people. But the second two, the third and fourth sport you said didn't really jump off the board for really big people. So why those four sports? Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I don't know why it, why basketball is the, the highest risk sport. I don't know why football and soccer, uh, you know, come next. Um, part of it could be um, li- are the limitations in our research, meaning in the U.S., we're largely dependent on finding a media report about a cardiac arrest or a tragedy in a young athlete. And that's how we probably identify 80% or more of the cases. 
other mechanisms come from, you know, reporting from the high school associations, you know, or an athletic trainer or something like that to the National Center for Catastrophic Sports Injury Research. So we have different mechanisms, but the majority of them are media reports. And I do think that the high profile sports are more likely to generate a media report. And so th there is some some evidence of this with uh, data from one of Kim Harmon's studies, one of my colleagues here at the University of Washington, looking at sudden cardiac death in NCA athletes. So looking at all the databases that we could find, all the cases, you know, if you were a division one athlete with a cardiac arrest, only about 88% of those cases had a media report that we could find in those cases. And in the division two athlete, it was like 65%. In the division three athlete, it was like 44%. So you can just see that the, the, the profile of the athlete and the, and the setting drove the likelihood of having media attention to it, which then sort of carries over to the likelihood that we find it and include it in our research on incidents. So I think we just have to acknowledge that there could be some bias in what we're finding and that these cases may be occurring in, in lower profile sports at rates that we just don't understand. Yeah. And John, it's interesting. And this, and this is a question I wanted to ask you before, and you led me right into it. And maybe it's a dumb question, but like, I feel like we do hear about these in media reported, certainly when they happen around other people or like when they're happening on the field or on, you know, like, and a lot of eyes are on it anyway. So sure. Do you feel like there's any amount of these folks that get missed? Because I don't know, do people sometimes just have sudden cardiac death in the shower or while they're swimming or while driving a car and then we call it something else? Like, Do you feel like we're pretty accurately catching young people that are having these conditions? What if nobody's around? You know, are you catching this on autopsy, that kind of stuff? I don't know if there's that many people falling through the cracks or not. Yeah, no, no, Julie, that's a great question. I think you're right. Um, so when it's exercise related and witnessed in a, in a game versus a practice, you know, more likely to generate that media report when, when the cardiac arrest occurs at home, very unlikely, right, to, to generate a media report. Um, cardiac arrest in these conditions, you know, can occur during exercise. It can also occur at rest or during sleep. The type of heart condition also dictates some of that risk as well. So um, if you look at things like anomalous coronary artery, um, arrhythmogenic cardiomyopathy, um, these are very much exercise-related events in our young athletes. When you look at something like hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, about half of the cases occur at rest or sleep. So that's not a, that's not a, a pure split 50-50. When you think that an athlete only exercises about two hours a day and is at rest or sleep maybe 22 hours a day, but still, it, it's not always during exercise. And so prevention for us, it's not just making people heart safe for what they do in sport. It's, it, it's for life, right? It's, it's outside of sport as well. Once we find a heart condition, we want to make them safe, you know, all around. Yeah. Thank you for the clarification. I was just thinking that, like, what if this happens if you're in a car? Would anybody know? I'm sure. I mean, it, again, we're probably getting down to the minutia of things, but it's just, 
Well, you've heard that. I mean, you know, as a as a medical professional, when you when you learn about something called long QT syndrome, that some of the triggers can be emotional stress, some of the triggers can be loud noises, and and so things that happen when you're driving, <laughs> whether it's emotional stress, honking horns, something like that, every you know can be triggered. If that person goes into cardiac arrest and gets in a car accident, you may never know. And that is not something you would find on autopsy. And, and there you have it, right? You, you, you have an unknown reason why that person had a cardiac arrest or why they got in a, a fatal car accident. You know, same thing with some of our drownings. You know, um, cold water immersion can be a trigger for cardiac arrest and can be a trigger specifically in long QT syndrome. And again, not going to show up on autopsy. Postmortem genetic testing could find it, but, but you know, doesn't always go that distance. And so, yeah, lots, lots of unknowns. The athletes we've covered thus far have all theoretically probably hit puberty. We talked about high school athletes, maybe some of them haven't, but do the numbers hold water pre-pubertal? I mean, are these things that are happening to kids that are younger and hence changing our screening, we should be going younger and such? You know, good, good question, Jeremy. Um, you know, some of the disorders are, are certainly present when you're younger. Um, things like long QT, wolf parkinsons white, et cetera. Other disorders develop phenotypically, meaning the expression of the heart disease happens later, usually through adolescence and puberty, things like hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. So you could not have it when you're 14 and have it when you're 18, so to speak. Um, and so when we look at the numbers specifically, the numbers of on sudden cardiac arrest in the young and young athletes starts to go up around age 12 with a with a spike like 14 to 16 and and then from there because that's the development of some of those genetic conditions that are finally expressing themselves um, for purposes of of athletic screening i i don't necessarily think we need to be screening younger than age 12 or younger than the middle school and i think for, for certain we want to be screening when when people are in in high school so Damar and Bronny with the, are the two examples we've used the most frequently in this, and they both survived um, and, and seem to have had what I would call a positive outcome, at least to date. How often do people survive this? Are people having these great outcomes? Like, why do some people do better? That kind of thing. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, um, the Damar Hamlin case is the most publicly sort of witnessed sudden cardiac arrest an athlete that we've had in, in the U.S. and perhaps internationally, you know, um, and, and and one of the, the downstream consequences of that, which is good, perhaps even the silver lining, is this huge swell of awareness about sudden cardiac arrest in general um, and the, the amount of advocacy for CPR training and availability of AEDs. Within the sports cardiology space, this is the one thing that we have actually done really well in terms of improving survival outcomes in young athletes who suffer a sudden cardiac arrest. And, and if you go back to early research that we did looking at exercise-related sudden cardiac arrests in the youth, between 2001 to 2006, the overall survival was only 11% was just 11%. Fast forward in data between 2014 and, and, and 2018, 
the overall survival was like 68%. Wow. And if you have an AED on site or an athletic trainer on site at the time of the event, survival is over 80%. And in, and in, if you look at specific years, and I know this, I know this data where in 2006, our survival was like 22% and in 2018 survival was 78%. That's a 250% increase in survival. And so this is, this is directly related to better recognition of sudden cardiac arrest in athletes, more availability of automated external defibrillators or AEDs on site, and hopefully more athletic trainers who are medical professionals in the high school setting. And thankfully, you know, we can look at sudden cardiac arrest in a young person during exercise. This is a survivable event, largely a survivable event with prompt recognition, prompt CPR, and and use of an AED. And so if you're a parent listening and you're wondering, wow, you know, I want to make sure my, my kids are safe, my school is safe, you know, et cetera, what do I do? I think that's the first thing I would do. I'd look around the school, where are the AEDs? I'd, I'd ask myself after hours, is an AED accessible? When it's a weekend game, is there an AED at the field? Do we have an athletic trainer in my, in, in my school? Um, can I help the, the school raise funds for more AEDs or to support an athletic trainer. These are the things that will make the the environment that your kids are playing in uh, more safe. You brought parents into this, so I'm going to go with a parent question. I'm fearful for my child listening to you, John. I, I don't know what to do with them. Are there, you mentioned most kids don't have symptoms of this, but are there symptoms I should be looking for? Yeah, good, good point. There are some warning symptoms that I think are important. So um, passing out with exercise is one of the red flag warning symptoms, and you should be evaluated by a physician. And I think in a young person, true passing out with exercise deserves both an EKG and an echocardiogram. The EKG looking for all the things we talked about, and the echocardiogram looking specifically for anomalous coronary arteries. Um, another warning symptom is chest pain with exercise. And I want to qualify what this chest pain feels like. So the chest pain is usually center of the chest or left-sided, probably squeezing, increasing, and happens at peak exertion, and then quickly goes away when you stop exercising. It's the type of chest, chest pain that makes you stop. If you were an older person with this type of extra, with this type of chest pain, we would call it angina or ischemic type chest pain. And that's sort of the chest pain that I think is the warning symptom. You know, chest pain that's bilateral, that's right-sided, where your heart isn't, just a tightness feeling. It, it, it's so hard to qualify. Chest pain that you you run your mile through and you never stop. I just don't know, you know, yeah, you can get it checked out, but I don't know just how sensitive that type of symptom is. So exertional chest pain that makes you stop exercising if you're if that's happening to your kid also get get evaluated i think to me those are the two biggest warning symptoms the third feature that i would throw out there is if you have a family history of heart problems specifically heart problems that have caused sudden cardiac arrest or death in a family member before the age of 40 or 50 you should get screened for those you should have your child screened for one of those genetic heart conditions 
So those are the part of the questionnaire that we do care about. That's the helpful part. It's the family history part, right? Absolutely. So, yeah. so, so those are the three questions on the questionnaire that I do think matter, except they're not worded perfectly. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> we'll just have John come in every time anybody ever does a PPE and just personally just be like, all right. Yeah. Brass we, text. We, yeah. We, 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 we reworded our history questions. So we use them differently. We have some data on that. We'll, we'll publish it soon, I hope which shows that it reduces the false positive rate. Um, whether or not it, it helps with sensitivity is to be determined. Language is very important on this show. Yeah, so, we do. We spend a lot of time on that. Communication yes. is everything. That's the whole reason we even exist, to be honest, this podcast. It's yeah. communicating better. I want to get back into prevention a little bit. I think we have a pretty good idea of where you stand on screening um, through this conversation, but maybe just to summarize real quick, um, you know, like, should we screen to everyone? Should everybody be screened once? Should everybody be screened a bunch of times? Like, where do you, what's your blanket statement for screening and I guess what the screening consists of? Yeah. So um, ideally I think, all competitive athletes should be screened with an EKG starting at age 12 and every two years, if not every year for some of our high-risk groups until they're done with their athletic career. The problem with that is our infrastructure. And so if you're a parent listening and you want your child to get a heart screen, it's really important that they go to someone who knows what they're doing um, and that they have you know, a, a high-quality heart screen with someone who knows how to interpret the EKG, you know, in primary care, you're not going to refer someone for their colonoscopy if that person doesn't know how to do the colonoscopy, right? And so we shouldn't just start doing EKGs on kids if we don't know how to interpret it. I saw one of those people today. They they had to get a EKG for playing college athletics. They saw their, their primary care provider. They had a totally normal looking EKG that was called, quote, borderline. And now they have to have yet a second visit with someone just to sort of sign off and say, your EKG is actually normal. You didn't really need to be here. Um, so we could sign that, that medical clearance. Um, you guys are lucky in Chicago. You have an incredible foundation in Chicago called Young, Young Hearts for Life, led by Joe Merrick and his wife, Kathy. Um, you know, that foundation has screened probably close, if not over a half million adolescents. They go into local schools and they screen a couple thousand kids in a day. It's incredible. Joe is one of my mentors and that would be a great place to go and get a heart screen, quite honestly, in the Chicago area because Young Hearts for Life uh, does it super well. I think your sports medicine group could be another place. I mean, there are there are places that they could seek out. They could see a, a cardiologist, hopefully, that has interest in, in sports cardiology and get their heart screened. So as we develop this infrastructure, it becomes more broadly available. So it, it, this shouldn't invoke panic as a parent. You know, you want what's you want your kid to be safe. It's a good conversation to have with your with your kid's physician about how they should be screened. I think it certainly makes sense to to seek out some um, higher quality and and more um, uh, robust screening. Uh, if your kid is really a competitive athlete, because exercise can be one of those triggers for, for cardiac arrest if they have a silent heart condition. And then maybe just orient us to like, what is done for screening these days? It, it like, what is required of kids across the country? 
Yeah. So, so across the country, they have to have a, a sports physical or what's called a pre-participation physical evaluation, a PPE. It's usually beginning in middle school and every two years. Um, some school districts or states will require it every year or every three years, depending. Um, and that, that evaluation is a history questionnaire and a physical exam and someone and a medical provider to sign off that the kid is cleared to play sports. And, and that's essentially what's happening. The EKG is, is not required. Um, it's just unfortunate that we're requiring evaluation that, that isn't very effective at identifying kids at risk. So if we're serious about it, we're going to invest on the infrastructure to do this better. Are there people across the world doing this better than us? I assume they are. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, Italy would be the country that is doing it probably the best because of the way they train their sports medicine physicians. They're all highly trained and, and EKG screening is by law in, in Italy. So starting at age 12, if you're if you're involved in sports, you're mandated to have a heart screen that includes an EKG. And so as a country, they're doing it better. And they have data that was published in 2006, looking back at their experience in at least one region of Italy called Veneto, that showed a, an 89% reduction in sudden cardiac death with the implementation of this national screening program using EKG. There, there's been critics of that study and whatnot, but it, but it should open everyone's eyes to the fact that we can do this better than we are in the United States. How do we make it cheaper and dumber and easier? Like, can't you just make robots do it? Like how the entertainment industry wants robots to write all of our uh, our, our TV shows. It makes me think that like you could do this, like somebody who is in Washington can review someone in Chicago's EKGs. So yeah. like we could access these, people could review these EKGs remotely, right? Absolutely. So so there's different models, right? So we, we just started, we, we have a program here at the University of Washington, where a local high school, if they purchase a EKG machine, the athletic trainer wants to do EKGs and they get consent from the parents, they can do the EKGs, um, basically uh, give us electronic access to them. We review them and then send back recommendations if they're if they're abnormal. Um, so there is a way certainly to do this type of remote, you know, ECG interpretation. I, I used to think that the ticket to really broad EKG screening in our young athletic population was physician infrastructure. And while I think that is really important, the real ticket to broad implementation of EKG is technology. And, you know, there's one EKG system on the market. I have no financial stake in the company, but it uses, you know, modern criteria for ECG interpretation athletes in their software. It's super accurate. And it's the best EKG in the market for screening athletes called Cardia 2020. And if you're a sports physician or a primary care physician, if you work at a college institution, if you do a lot of sports physicals and you want a leg up, if you want a good second set of eyes looking at your EKG to tell you if the EKG is normal or abnormal, Cardia is super accurate and a great place to start. You know, layer on to that, what will probably happen over the next 10 years is the implementation of AI to look at ECGs in, in young athletes. And 
I know some of that work is happening. It, it's it's certainly not ready for prime time. It's in its early phases of research, but there's really no reason that technology can't do this better than we can looking at an EKG. And once we get to that point where a machine can read it with super accuracy, super low, low, you know, false positive rate, very low unnecessary testing afterwards and a lot of accuracy now it becomes broadly applicable and we can we can do that and and again the goal of that early detection the same goal that we have right now we're just using tools that don't do it very well so better early detection and then i think we can intervene and hopefully make these these athletes safer do you foresee, John, pushback from the human beings that don't want to be replaced by robots? <laughs> Do you foresee, like, yeah, like a, a sports cardiologist or a sports medicine physician who does this being like, no, they're taking our jobs? Or you're like, no, great, jump in on the fun. Let's get this. I mean, I feel like it's a very American capitalist thing to be like, let's wait for someone to want to profit off of it so that we can well, mass well, screen everybody. I didn't mention profit as the, you know, as the <laughs> driving force there. Um okay. I mean, I think we've all been in in this field long enough to see how technology impacts it and makes it better. So in sports medicine, take, for instance, the the use of ultrasound in our practices, which is now super commonplace, right? Which and ultrasound machines are getting, you know, better and even smaller and more portable and less expensive, et cetera. So technology has helped. I think in the in the cardiac space, it will be the same and this will allow more people to do it we'll never be able to replace, thankfully, you know, the human side of it, um, which has to think through difficult treatment algorithms and management strategies and shared decision-making with, with an athlete who is diagnosed with a potential heart condition or a confirmed heart condition. You know, the, the study that we're doing now that's called ORCA, um, Outcomes Registry for Cardiac Conditions in Athletes, is intended to do just that, is to monitor young athletes who are identified with a heart condition and really see what happens over time, whether or not they continue to play sports, monitor their cardiovascular outcomes, quality of life outcomes, health, you know, mental health outcomes. And we have really the, the sports cardiology community around the nation as part of that study. So um, that to me is sort of the human side of it, meaning understanding how to counsel, taking in all the facts, disease management, et cetera. But the the diagnostic testing hopefully will just get better and better and we'll be able to, to use it. Can you graduate out of this? So like at what point am I, I've made it this far, I haven't had cardiac arrest and I'm a healthy athlete. Do I not have to worry about it or should I just be being screened forever? I mean, I play, my whoop score says I play a pretty hard basketball on Sundays. Should I be seeing a cardiologist <laughs> and getting screened? Yeah. You know, there's, there's some, there's some peak times, right? So that sort of, um, you know, late high school period, early college period is probably our peak time. So 16 to, you know, age 20, it would be my, my high risk sort of time frame. Um, with certain heart conditions, the longer you've lived, you've sort of, you've sort of proven your, your lower risk to have an event. And, and, you know, if you take a young adolescent with the same disease as let's say a 30 year old, the young adolescent is sort of higher risk until proven otherwise. So when you've lived longer, you've, you've lived out of, of some of that risk, you know, thankfully. Um, I don't think necessarily the screening has to occur, you know, forever as a competitive athlete. You know, if you've had a normal screen and you're just playing pickup hoops and stuff like that later on, I don't necessarily think you need to continue with with a you know a, a yearly screen or something like that. 
the, the turning point becomes when new diseases have the potential to develop. And so mm-hmm. I know that's not the focus of this podcast, perhaps another time, but how do we screen our, our, our aging athletes, our master's athletes, our, our 45 and up group? You know, when you turn, once you hit 35, the leading cause of sudden cardiac arrest is just typical atherosclerosis and coronary artery disease and just the people who have it really prematurely. But when you're 45 and older, that's clearly what's what might get you. And there are some ways to screen for that well um, that aren't an EKG. And that's a different talk using like a coronary artery calcium score. And so, yeah, so I think, you know, people play hoops for for a long time. I still try to get on the court here and there just to get embarrassed by my son who can beat me really easily now. Um, But that's okay. Um, but I think about the, the group around me of my peers who are playing and who may have medical conditions or maybe who has been screened. And, you know, th- there is a way to screen that group better than we are. Um, and of course, you know, we always got to have those defibrillators around and make sure that, that people are playing in safe environments. My whoop comment actually reminded me I had another question. What about the wearables? Like, are, are these playing a role in, in us finding or preventing any of this? I don't think so. The the wearables, um, you know, monitor your heart rate that maybe can detect something like atrial fibrillation, which is uh, a non-lethal arrhythmia. Um, And they can certainly have some value to help you with your training regimen and stuff like that. I don't think that they are necessarily detecting conditions at risk for, for sudden death in young athletes at this point. Jeremy, I think Dr. Dresner did a really diplomatic job of answering your question about how long you should be being screened. Mm-hmm. He didn't call you a master's athlete yet, but no, well, but I, I loved the diplomacy that John used being like, well, sir, there, there's no videotape of me playing, but I do know that my strain score would probably equal that of a college basketball player without the <laughs> amount of strain that the college basketball player is putting. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's called aging. And, and, you know. We're all fighting that battle. I can tell you that. <laughs> you heard it here first. Aging is normal from Dr. John Dresner. Yes. Um, I have one more question before we wrap up here. It, you've, you've painted a really good picture on screening. At this point, it kind of feels like a no-brainer. Like, it seems like we should be doing this. So what's the argument not to be doing it? Who, who's standing up and arguing against this? And say, what are they saying? Yeah, so the, um, the argument, I think, has shifted over time, right? And the initial argument was it's not cost effective. So, and that was driven by a high number of what's called false positives. I mean, EKGs that were determined to be abnormal that really weren't abnormal and there was nothing going on in in that athlete. So it led to unnecessary and costly tests while holding the athlete out to play. Well, well well, that has completely changed now that our false positive rate is so much lower, right? So we're like in that 1% range for high school athletes and maybe 2% range for college athletes compared to 20, 25%, you know, when you look back two decades ago. So the cost effectiveness piece of this has completely changed. Um, And I think that um, we have unfortunately been impacted by national organizations that have not changed with the evidence, meaning that as new evidence emerged that the standard history and physical didn't work, that EKG could detect conditions at risk better, you know, using the same goal of the of the evaluation, um, that they didn't change their ways. They were stuck to say, nope, don't do EKG, just do history and physical. If those same organizations 
would have stood up and say, we want to set a five-year goal. We want to, we know this is a, a better protocol, a better screen. We want everyone to be able to do it well. So we're going to sort of progressively get ourselves there by investing in infrastructure, training, and education. You know, if the American Heart Association, if the American Academy of Pediatrics would have stood up and said, we need to learn EKG so we can do this well, I guarantee that this would have come true by now. But instead, they have continued to put their foot down and say, we shouldn't use it. And I totally disagree. And and I don't think they're, be, they're providing an evidence-based recommendation. Just as diplomatic of an answer. <laughs> uh, anything you want to uh, ask, Julie, before I wrap up here? No, I, uh, I'm good. I think that was great. Awesome. Uh, one of the things we always ask uh, guests on the show, John, is if you have any resources you recommend for people to either learn more or refer to this topic, they finish, they're really interested to learn more. Well, like, where do you point people? Yeah. So I think when you think about um, sudden cardiac arrest in young athletes, there is a national organization that's called Parent Heart Watch. These are parents of um, that have had a child with sudden cardiac arrest some survivors, many who lost their child, but the organization has invested a lot into educational resources about the topic, um, places to, to get CPR trained, places to get uh, to purchase an AED. Um, and so Parent Heart Watch, I think is honestly a wonderful resource. Um, American Heart Association, American Red Cross, if you're not CPR trained, you should be CPR trained. Your school should have defibrillators. Make sure you raise some money and, and, and put those AEDs um, both inside and outside. Um, and if you're a, a, a clinician and you want to know, want to know more about EKG screening and interpretation, then come to our website, um, for the, the, the UW sports cardiology, what we call the E Academy and, and they can find the training modules, which are free. And I can attest to those. Those are amazing. Um, and I probably should be doing them every three years because the information goes in and then I'm becoming more plastic as I get older. Um, I'm going to, I'm just going to can my whole PPE lecture for tomorrow and just link to that and yeah, then just, right. just coast. The, um, there was no way that Dr. Dresner would have known this, but we do our next our episode next week. If you are listening and want to hang with us and be with your doctor friends next week is all about learning CPR and with a great rapid response nurse who's going to go through emergencies with us. So we coupled the episodes for everybody. So please check out next week. Good preview. Perfect. Well, my, uh, my call to action will wrap, um, will tie in the episode from last week and really come into play next week. And that is, we are really giving some information on how people can save lives and that's not doctors and that's not clinicians and that's not nurses who do this for a living. That is somebody walking down the street. That is a friend that is a family member who recognizes something and takes action and saves a life. Um, Mm -hmm. So with the heat illness and again, talking about sudden cardiac death this week and then uh, CPR and and stroke and such, we'll talk about next week. Everybody can be a lifesaver. So that's my call to action. Absolutely. Um, So when we're doing cardiac screening, we should use the right tool for the job with an adequately trained tool holder. (laughs) Listen to your doctor friends. (laughs) The amazing music is credited to Skillcell with Pixabay licensure. The podcast is meant for educational and entertainment purposes only. The contents of this podcast should not be taken as medical advice to treat any medical condition in either yourself or others. Please consult a medical professional for any medical issues that you may be having. 
The contents of this podcast are the opinions of the hosts only and do not reflect the opinions of their employers or affiliations. This entire disclaimer also applies to any guests or contributors to the podcast. Under no circumstances shall Dr. Julie Bruni or Dr. Jeremy Allen or any guest to the podcast be responsible for damages arising from use of the podcast. Thank you.